And we are live. Hello, Shannon Yates. Hey. Hi. How are you doing on this lovely New Orleans afternoon, actually? You're not in the Bahamas. I think you're the first guest I've had, the second guest that I've had that is actually not in the Bahamas either. So that's good. Oh, awesome. It is freezing and not Nassau freezing. <laughs> I know. That's such a whole new definition, right? When you, you live in Nassau and you're like, oh, there's a cold front. It's so cold. And then you get somewhere else and you're like, yeah. I miss our cold fronts when it was seemingly cold. We yeah. have about eight viewers. Oh, wow. This is really quick. Tell us where you're from. Say hello in the comments. We are about to get this show on the road. I uh, will wait a few seconds if there are people that want to give us a shout. This episode is going to be very informative, very educational. Oh, we got our first hello. Look at you, Prof. Poseidon. I love that. I love that. <laughs> Dr. <Yates>. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. So welcome, so, everyone, to another episode of Siren Sundays. My name is Lashanti Jupp. I am, of course, your host. Would you guys believe this is like the episode, second to last episode for this season? And I got to have my lovely friend, my dear friend, Shannon Yates, on this show to talk about something near and dear to her heart. She is my dear new callus. <laughs> but before we run on a bit too much about all that fun stuff, let's get this show on the road. Hi, Shannon. Welcome to the show. How are you feeling? Hi, thank you for having me. First of all, <laughs> I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm a little nervous, <laughs> but we're talking about something that I am in love with, and I do love working with reptiles. So that should make it a smoother, easier conversation for us. And you're talking to me, remember? That's true, but there's like all those people in Facebook land and YouTube land. Don't worry, it's like 10 people watching, so no pressure. <laughs> okay. But definitely, give us a brief description of who you are and your work, your educational background, your experience. How did you get to be a PhD student studying what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's been a long road. Um, I graduated high school. I attended Bahamas Baptist Community College. Shout out to BBCC. Um, got an... Uh, associate's degrees, then I went to COB. And at the time in COB, I was in on that medical, you know, biology, you're good at science, so you should become a medical doctor. But in my heart, I knew that really wasn't for me. And honestly, <laughs> um, I, I just needed to figure out how I can still be in sciences without going to become a doctor. So I remember clearly, I needed like a an elective. So they were offering conservation biology in the summer. I took the course and it was so just enlightening to see they these are like scientists and they're not necessarily in a lab, I mean in a hospital, right? Um, and so it opened up like a whole new world of biology and studying the natural world. And I always had just a interest in lizards per se. I was just really curious about lizards even when I was smaller. And I could remember I had, and this is kind of a gory story, but I remember you, we used to like take the lizards and take stones and like <laughs> catch them. <laughs> and I would dissect them because I was curious to what inside looked like. And I had like books on like human biology and what human organs look like but I didn't know what inside a lizard looked like. Did it have like the same shape heart and all of that stuff? But That's not yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a little gory, but it was just like the curiosity of how these animals, you know, exist in our world or exist in the world, right? Because we right. share the world with them. Um, so it was really nice that I got to get that, you know, I was open to the field of herpetology when I did cons conservation biology. And then I started um, volunteering with the Bahamas National Trust because they were like the only, per um, you know, organization that, you know, worked in the environmental field. Um, and I met Sandra Buckner. So Sandra Buckner is, if you don't know, she is like 
in my opinion, my personal opinion, like the the authority on Bahamian reptiles in the Bahamas, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that summer when I was at BNT, she brought in this cane toad, which was like this very newly introduced species in the Bahamas at the time. And I, I just looked at it and it was a beautiful animal. Like it was just gorgeous. <laughs> and I was awestruck at how beautiful this thing was. But unfortunately, they're so destructive, right? Um, yeah. They're invasive. They sort of eat every single thing in their path. Um, and they're not good for the environment, especially when they're introduced. So I decided to just use that as my independent study for um, University, University of the Bahamas. And I collected 20 of them, dissected them, um, sort of like presented all that data at the Bahamas Natural History Conference, which was, this was very, I guess, pivotal in, I, in my journey. Um, so I presented the data and at the student series presentation, and that I got the attention of some of the scientists that were also presenting at the time. Mm -hmm which was like really cool for me. I'm like, oh, I don't know these people, but they do work in the Bahamas. I'd like to work with them. Um, and then I went on the Shedd Aquarium's um, citizen science um, trip, which they study Bahamian iguanas. And oh my God, I was in heaven, <laughs> right? <laughs> Running around the Bahamian bush, like um, just studying iguanas. So that sort of started my actual you know, practicing of um, studying reptiles in the mm -hmm. Yeah. So let me see, where, where do I go from there? As far as degrees, you stopped at associates. So. I, oh, so yeah. So the, the Kinto thing, that was like my bachelor's at um, the College of the Bahamas, now the University of the Bahamas. Um, and then after I did my bachelor's degree, I decided I just needed to figure out how can I take this passion and parlay it into a career. And I didn't understand or know how to do that. And there aren't necessarily a lot of organizations in the Bahamas or, you know, just entities that you can go to and be like, hey, I want to study reptiles. Right. How do we do that? Um, so I took a year and I visited with a bunch of, um, you know, scientists that came through that were doing fieldwork in the Bahamas. Um, so fieldwork ranging from studying um, brown animals, which are like the lizards that we see. Hey, cousin. The lizards that are that <laughs> our regular lizards are common brown and old lizards and the green ones. Um, so they were studying those. Um, animals. Um, I did Bahamas swallow stuff, right? Because I wanted to be sure that lizards or just like reptiles is sort of like what I wanted to study and understand like some of the questions that I wanted to facilitate or answer. Right. Um, and that was really a good experience for me because it gave me a lot of field um, experience, what it is to collect data. Um, and sort of, all right, you got to plan all of this, go in the field, collect the data, make sure, you know, you get all the kinks worked out before all of that. And then after I was done with that, I still didn't know how to apply to graduate school or <laughs> you know, like the process of going through graduate school and everything that I would need. Um, so I went back into the workforce. I worked at a restaurant and then Eric called me and was like, I have a job for you. <laughs> so, <laughs> what are you doing? He was like, yeah. And then I started at the Bahamas National Trust where I worked at the retreat gardens. And it's that job sort of like cemented what I wanted to do. And it made me realize that I wanted to be the scientist, mm -hmm. right? 
the, and no offense, and everyone has their purpose, but the strictly office work wasn't for me. I needed to be in the field and I needed uh, a job where I can be collecting data, analyzing data, and, you know, yeah, just, I guess, the scientific aspect of it. No need to say no offense. Yeah. So you left BNT to do what? What are you doing right now? I am currently currently at the university, not the university, um, Tulane University in New Orleans in Benderson Lab studying um, thermal physiology and using brown annals as our study systems. So for me, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blame it on my audience. What do you mean by thermal physiology? Uh, so it's, um, what do I mean by thermal physiology? And I need to say that in terms as, I don't need to use more scientific words, right? Usually yeah, layman terms. I think thermal <laughs> is temperature. Yeah, physiology right. is the functions of the body. So what about the thermal physiology are we talking about? When you so talk it's essentially how heat affects how you function and how your yeah. bodily, um, yes, your body functions operate, right? At different temperatures. At different temperatures. Um, in terms of, say, for instance, um, and we'll talk about this later, but the when we talk about, say, a lizard, so Lizards generally get their heat from, or reptiles in general get their heat from the external um, environment, right? So they don't make their own heat like how us as humans do. Um, So they have to sort of go out in the sun and get all that radiation and let them warm up and bask, (laughs) right? Um, So different temperatures affect how like their body functions right? Um, how they will metabolize, how they will break down food, or how even their rate of like how they produce certain hormones. Um, yeah. So something. I'm going to ask a silly question. And I hope this doesn't put you on the spot because it's going to be super silly. And this may make me look silly as well. So we know that reptiles are cold-blooded. Just like you said, they have to use the sun to warm their bodies and regulate their temperature. So hypothetically speaking, mm. if let's just say 80 degrees Fahrenheit, a oh, lizard, wow. <laughs> <laughs> right, very, very technical. But okay. you know, cause I imagine something kind of like an oven, right? If you decide to bake something and it's 350 mm-hmm. degrees and it's supposed to be in the oven for 20 minutes, but if you turn up the oven to like 400 degrees, <laughs> hypothetically, right? You could just put it in the oven for 10 minutes. Now granted, of course, it's not work with cakes, but in the terms of reptiles, the hotter it is outside, do they spend less time in the sun or is it, you know, so, so that I'm making sense. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's making sense. You you lost me at like 400 degrees. They'll <laughs> burn and <In> the oven. <laughs> But yeah, so the longer they... And I want to... I want to... Okay, so I'm trying not to... Because my brain is just thinking about just like the technical and how to break it down. So say for instance... Each animal has like a, a temperature at which like they it's they have a peak from performance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, once they go out in the sun or they like get to that body temperature, they then right. retreat because they anything after that would sort of like you know start to be like a fever. It's too hot. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's too hot. So systems are going to start to break down, and so they'll just retreat. At four hundred, at a higher temperature than what they need to be, and this is like really cool, but there are like different variant temperatures like within one environment. So once the open might be four hundred, but say under the shade might be two hundred and fifty, and that. I love how we're still in an oven right now. And that might be favorable <laughs> for them. So you would, they would tend, they'll tend to be under the tree. Mm-hmm. And you, you understand what I mean? So that yeah. temperature under the tree would be more bearable 
for them to get their optimal temperature going. So when we look at things, and I know um, I'm going to talk about green iguanas. They are invasive, guys. Green iguanas are invasive. We don't like Very them. much so. Right. And they're in Florida, which I'm pretty sure they're also invasive there as well. And, you know, this whole cold front that came in, I think a couple times a year when a cold front hits, you see these iguanas freezing and falling out of trees. I'm so sorry. I started laughing at that. But and how did they survive that? How and did they survive? They, well, some of them don't survive. Some of them die. <laughs> um, most oh. of them actually die. Um, and so that's some of the questions like the lab that we're I'm in. So you have a cold tolerance and you have a heat tolerance, right? So yeah. your heat tolerance is like the the maximum temperature the atmosphere can be that you can like, you know, survive in or mm -hmm you can tolerate and your cold tolerance is sort of like the temperature, like the coldest temperature where you can still like function. Right. Um, so what's happening with those, they are exceeding their cold um, temperature limit. And so most of their body functions shut down completely. Right. Mm -hmm. And they just, I mean, when your body functions shut down completely, you just die. But it was like a hibernation kind of thing. No. What's interesting, though, some of the animals that do survive, um, we're thinking that they do, like, develop some resistance to that cold. So Adaptation and evolution. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there is, like, some sort of, like, I guess, either some gene transfer or plasticity that and I shouldn't. It's okay. That word. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. Some I'll help you break it down. <laughs> <laughs> that they're, you know, um, transferring to like their next generation, that they're building that sort of like, you know, tolerance. To the, yeah. To the cold. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, when they hear things like mutations and genes and stuff, they don't think of this aspect of it, right? Where, it's an adaptation. So when things like cold fronts happen, or even if you look at just different things that have happened across time, but mm -hmm. using this specific example in time, the same iguanas that survive these cold fronts are going to pass these mutant genes down to their mm -hmm. offspring, allowing them to survive in these colder temperatures as well, yeah. thus continuing the species, right? And I think a lot of people don't realize that that's almost kind of like what evolution. Yeah. And everyone gets so touchy when they hear the word evolution. Yeah. You, know, you think humans evolving from apes, and it's like, no, no, humans did not evolve from apes. We are in the ape family. Yeah. And we evolved from a more primitive version of what we are today mm -hmm. based on intelligence, allowing us to survive our environment, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. That's not what we're here to talk about, though. But yeah. clearly, we're both very intelligent guys. <laughs> so yeah. we, um, we do have two questions. I know one is asking about cane toads, but before we jump onto that, I do want to quickly say, because I know in our hashtags, we threw around the term herper and her, yeah. you know, emphasizing the her. Can you just quickly explain what herps is? Like when someone says, oh, because I actually have a friend, she may or may not be watching, Safira from St. Lucia. Uh -huh. Literally when I met her in 2018, she introduced herself. She said, hi, my name is Safira and I'm a herper. Oh, awesome. I have a friend that you need to meet. And when she saw I was doing this episode, she was like, I'm tuning in. And I was like, you have to. But what? And when she said that, I was like, yeah, I had to learn what that meant. I had no idea what a herper was. What's a herp? Tell us. Tell the people, Shannon, what's a herp? Okay. So herp, <laughs> herper and herp is a derivative of the actual study of um, reptiles and amphibians, which is herpetology. So herpetology mm -hmm. is the study of amphibians and reptiles and herp is a derivative of it just shorten it right yeah. so whenever you talk about thing. all reptiles and amphibians herps um and i think herp her would like the capital h-e-r is um a hashtag to emphasize females who you know who herp yeah who herp right because the yeah. field is male dominated <laughs> Is anything in sort of like biology? And I think just with reptiles, I mean, I guess, so it's inaccurate to say reptiles and herps then. It's just herps. It's just herps. Right. Because herps, it's, it's, it's alluding to reptiles and amphibians. We can't right. forget our amphibians out there. 
You know, I have a special <laughs> feeling towards frogs that I, I would not mind forgetting them. But we'll, onto the king we'll turtle. On that. <laughs> yeah, we we baby snitch with the snake ones. Shout out to Scott for getting Sweetie the Bohemian Boa near me, and Shannon for actually putting her on me, which was yeah very interesting. And, a very interesting you know, experience. And I'm betting because of that experience, you're not as afraid of them, right? <laughs> or you're more right. tolerable. And, you know, I have to be careful because I see Scott posting pictures of his little daughter touching snakes. And I'm like, I am so embarrassed. I am so, I'm a grown woman and I am afraid of these beautiful boas. <laughs> but but the like one of our, 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 the things that we're fighting against, right, is these like preconceived um, mm -hmm. notions that we've been taught growing up about these animals. And I'm a hundred percent sure if like any any of my family members <laughs> watching or even seeing photos of me, it's like I can't. There, I have family members who are like deadly scared of snakes, and even like the thought of a lizard being outside, it's like insane listen honey and this is this is a, a warning content warning for anyone watching who is definitely afraid of snakes towards the end of this episode we will be showing some pictures of shannon and herps inclusive of the beautiful bohemian boa so stay yeah. tuned for that uh, but <laughs> so we do have a question about cane toads um someone heard that i'm going to pop it up really quickly but it's a lengthy question um Heard about them when they first were discovered in the Bahamas, and then it was like a cold case. Are they under control, or are they still mating with the natives ones? And I know that was something we were concerned about, which is called hybridization. Soon I'm going to get to the point where I can do that, and the word actually shows up. But I actually didn't know that they were already yeah. um, cross-breeding. Well, but cane toads. Like yeah, cane toads. Um, so the what's to note is we only have, we don't have any species of toads. Um, when we talk about amphibians, we have frogs and we have toads. We don't have mm -hmm. any native species of toads. Um, I think the hybridization that she might be referencing to is the um, green iguanas and the rock iguanas, mm -hmm. but um, they are much larger species than our frogs. Um, and because they're like very two distinct lineages, um, frogs and um, toads. I don't see any hybridization happening. What's of concern with the cane toads is your small animals that may um, tend to like bark at it or even like provoke it and they can potentially get poison from the bufotoxin that they excrete, right? Mm -hmm. um, and our biodiversity. So those are like the the different animals that make up our environment. So right. they're they're very they're not specialized eaters. They anything that can fit in their mouth, they will attempt to eat. Like and other frogs, other frogs, snakes. If they're big enough and vicious. in their mouth, they will attempt to eat it. Um, even the the short study I did was um, they were being eating pet food. So they were like going in the back of people's yards and they were literally eating out dog food and cat food. Cause when I dissected them, you could like still see like the shape of the, the, the food. That's honestly, that just made my stomach roll. And yeah. I'm not new to dissections. I've dissected a cat before and in its stomach was like grass. What oh. the heck? Yeah, nonetheless. So thank you for clearing that up. I actually didn't know that we had no native toads in the Bahamas. I swore that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know much about herbs. I, I tend the, to avoid them. The two Elutrodactylus um, frogs that we have, like the tiny ones that yeah. you like here, um, they, they're, I, they're frogs. Yeah. Yeah. And there, we don't have Nate, we don't have a lot of native on diversity in frogs. But as to the question about um, control and of the species, I think that's more on the end of um, Ministry of Environmental Health. Mm -hmm. The Depart um, yeah, Department of Environmental Health Services, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, they have an animal control unit. 
And I believe Scott was working with them um, to help with that. But they've been, they're established now. Um, mm -hmm. So it's just a matter of how to like even control them, which is a hard thing because, yeah. Yeah. They reproduce so rapidly. Yeah. And so we do have a question from Eric. And he's about to put you on the spot. So what does Miss Shannon plan to do with her topic of study? Are you going to be in academia? Are you going to be a researcher? Are you coming back to conservation? <laughs> do I have to answer that right now? <laughs> you can just say you're not sure at this time. I mean, you just started yeah. your PhD. That is true. I just finished my first semester. Yay. Yeah. Um, yay. It was long. <laughs> but I think for me, it's, it That's is. Thank you, Dr. Delancey. Yeah, awesome. Um, and it goes back to what I said earlier. I'm more of, I like asking questions and trying to answer those questions. Right. Um, so I believe that would put me in the research. Now, my the research can also inform some conservation decisions, right? As, as we are very science-based, yes, science-based conservation. Exactly. But I, I would definitely heavily stay with research. Okay. Yeah. There's still, there will always still be a place for you at home and even in the Bahamas National Trust. Of course. You're welcome, Eric. You know, there, <laughs> there can be even like maybe UB would be um, advanced to that stage where they actually do research in yeah. the natural sciences. I just, I just think it needs more people like you and like our love, beloved William to just yeah. come and, and just bite the bullet, you know? And it's really biting the bullet because researchers at home are very scarce and... We have brilliant scientists and we just need to treat them better and welcome them with arms wide open. Mm -hmm. That's a topic I don't want to dip into. Um, the show right now. <laughs> I know there are about two more questions. One of them we can probably address right now from our lovely Anessa talking about the toxins. So when the cane toads are eating these pet food, are they leaving some of the toxins behind? Like, is it now a dangerous thing for pets? That's actually a really good question. It's not silly. There's no such thing as silly questions. Exactly. Um, so the the toxin is usually, um, it is excreted when they are provoked. So it's a defensive mechanism, right? Okay. So say, for instance, the cat or the dog then finds the... Right? The cat or the dog is probably going to want to defend its food. <laughs> right. So then you have a square off between the cane toad and um, the dog and, mm -hmm. you know, Who will win? then you will have a problem. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's when they come in contact with each other, not necessarily mm -hmm. by them eating um, the, the food. But if you do eat the cane toad, and I would say <laughs> don't eat them, um, they in their skin <laughs> itself. Um, they do have like, um, toxins within the skin See, and they're, they're, they're toxic at all life stage. So eggs, um, tadpoles and adults. So, <laughs> sorry, that innards part got me. So I know that I've had frog legs before. Mm -hmm. Is it that you can't have toad legs of a cane toad? You'd have to care. So it's not like lionfish. It's okay if, if this is like a way out of the ballpark question. Because if we start killing them and start selling toad legs, this could, this could be a lucrative, you know, thing. <laughs> I'm laughing because William is probably liking this question. Really? Um, yeah. He's, he's asked many times, why don't we just like start eating them? Um, well, because... Frog legs taste good. I it, honestly, it tastes like chicken. Those little muscles, wow. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I, I would say it because the the toxin is like throughout, and what you don't want to do is 
agitate the skin and then introduce that to the to the meat. Right. Mm, okay. Um so, so no I would I would I would say a no-go. Okay. And if I'm you're gonna, gonna try it try at your own leisure. And I do believe they probably do it. They probably they make souvenirs out of them in Australia. I know that much. Um, I don't know if they have ventured into eating them as yet. Interesting. I'm going to probably Google that for real later because I imagine, I mean, if we have so many of them, pop them in the freezer like what we do with the crabs and then see what happens. I mean, but disclaimer, I'm not telling anybody to go out there and do this. For someone to come back and say I poisoned them from my show, everything at your own risk. Don't try this at home, folks. Exactly. <laughs> I agree. Don't try it at, at home. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't, you know, Bahamians, but Bahamians are very brave. I mean, we eat barracuda knowing that there's like a 80-20 exactly. chance. 80-20, not 50-50, 80-20 chance. But <laughs> so we do have a question again from Levita talking about our Bahamian snakes. And I do want you to answer that. But first, I want you to just talk about the fact that we have endemic reptiles because of course the title of the show is endemic iguanas and people are waiting for me to ask this big question that I've been advertising this whole time. <laughs> so and I'm saving that till towards the end. So you have to stay tuned for that one. But, and what does it mean to be endemic? Let's just start off with that. Yeah, I was going to, so we have like three categories that we tend to like put animals in. We have introduced invasive native, well, that's four. And then um, endemic, right? So our introduced species are species that are not um, known to occur in a in a place and have been introduced from a different environment. Right. So, um, our um, native species are species that have been in an, have been introduced and are not invasive, and over time they have sort of like you know adapted and co-evolved in like an area and it's established, right? Mm -hmm. And then our endemic species are species that are only known to a specific area or a specific geographic region, right? right. Um, they aren't found anywhere else except for that particular place. So in the Bahamas, um, we have, I think about five endemic snakes, endemic boas. Okay. Um, and those are like the, I believe the common name is foul snakes, are foul snakes, right? Okay. Um, they're birds and foul because they stink, right? Yes. Yeah, so they excrete this like, <laughs> <laughs> they excrete this like really stinky musk. Um, yeah. And it smells like, I guess, foul doo-doo <laughs> when you think about it. <laughs> right. When you the PG there. The pen, right? Yeah. Um, that really like high smell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, nice. <laughs> they're only found, those particular snakes are only found in the Bahamas. And that's really unique. Like when you think about just like endemic boas in general, um, we have a higher density of, you know, endemic species, I mean, snakes. Yeah. Um, compared to like, say, Jamaica, which is a really bigger island that has just one endemic boa yeah. or like Cuba that has one. And for the Bahamas, you know, to be having that's five. five, that's Listen, unique and that's special. And we, we need to run into Galapagos. Like. <laughs> True. Yeah. <laughs> Out of a hesitation. Like, oh. Yeah, I have to think about that. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, that's really unique for us to be holding like all these endemic species. And the thing that we don't really appreciate them, it's it's sad and it's right. it, it breaks my heart. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, a lot of times on the show, uh, we talk about we have talked about other sorts of animals that are iconic to the Bahamas. You know, we've already talked about spiny lobster. We talked about the queen conch. Haven't gotten a grouper yet. Fingers crossed I'll get Krista on my show one day to talk about grouper. But people don't realize that our Bahamian boas are actually pretty beautiful. And I'm not a huge snake person either. I must say that uh, while I did not share the same fears as most Bahamians of looking at snakes as the devil and evil, 
Mm-hmm. They just, it's something about their eyes that just freak me out. And people don't realize that our Bahamian boa is really iconic on a, on a worldwide platform. We have five endemic snake species. We just found a silver boa a couple of years ago that was only found here in the Bahamas. So if we start killing the things that are special to us, then, you know, what, what really, what value are we placing on these beautiful creatures that call our islands home, you know, and they help us with Sorry. (laughs) The thing is like people from all over, like, unfortunately, they collect them because they're so beautiful, right? Yeah. Um, and because we don't know the value of it when people come in and they're like, oh, yeah, I want one of your snakes. Right. This easy peasy. Yeah, you can take him. We don't like them here. Right. <laughs> I did not know. Like, the, le- the legal wildlife trade is an industry, guys, like in the Bahamas. Like, I remember... Mm-hmm. When we had that whole thing a couple of years ago where those people smuggled 13 out, uh, 13 iguanas, endemic iguanas out to the UK, they made it all the way to the United Kingdom Uh and we had to bring them back. Like, oh, oh, yeah. It's sorry. Crazy. And we're going to show pictures later, too, of some of our endemic iguanas. And yes, we are still going to talk about, and I saw someone ask, we are going to talk about what iguanas eat and feeding of iguanas very, very soon. It's coming. Mm-hmm. But now that we're segueing into the iguana topic, how mm-hmm. many endemic um, species but, or subspecies? Oh, no. Did you have another point? Yeah. Just before we go on, like, yeah. snakes are, it's not just the beauty, right? So they they help to regulate um, vermins in our, our rats and, you know, like lower species in our ecosystem. And that's important just that they, they're not just beautiful, but they're helpful to our environment and they're helpful to the ecosystem in general. Yeah. Like, y'all want to see less rats around? Keep the snakes around, right? Definitely. And mm, Anessa just had a great comment. Yes, I think, you know, I just actually spoke with Scott the other day saying, I got to have you come on my show. And I think this is the perfect topic. So I will definitely be reaching out to him about that. And yeah, all did not survive. I think 13, only nine survived, yeah. if I remember correctly. Um, we do have a question about the cane toad from Papa Jup. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently in Australia, they're making fertilizer out of the cane toad. I, yeah, I, I've never heard of that. I don't know about it, but I know they do like annual cullens of them where they literally go out and they just Drive trucks. Yeah, I've heard of that. And like you can find videos on YouTube with them just driving trucks over streets filled with cane toads. And like Mm. I just got chills down my back. Like, because that's just so like to hear the popping, like, oh, if they could scream, I'm sure it would be bloody murder in the streets. But and it's like not their fault, right? Because they were introduced as um biological control for the cane beetles. <laughs> what they didn't realize was these toads aren't going to go in and eat what you want them to eat. <laughs> yeah. right? um, they're going to go for the easier foods because the beetles would borrow onto the ground and they would like climb up on the, um, the canes. They're going to go for the stuff that they can stuff in their mouth. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I, and I've brought this up before in a past episode. I feel like Anyway, I'm not even going to dive too deep to who that was and what we started saying, but I know just recently the topic of, you know, human intervention with nature, right? Like how much is too much? Like that's a perfect example right there. Like, oh my gosh, you thought a solution. Yes. While it is a natural based solution, Mm -hmm. never, you should never try to introduce things into an ecosystem. Um, I even sometimes wonder if the reintroduction of things is a good idea, like species that are no longer located, um, in a particular area if it's okay to bring them back but again we're not going to dive into that because we have a lot to talk about and would you believe already 40 minutes in oh wow yeah um but so endemic iguanas i see a question about them so how many endemics do we have for the iguanas in the bahamas spit some facts and you're frozen or is that me Oh gosh, I'm getting a bit worried now. Can people hear me out in the virtual world? (laughs) Interesting. 
Well, I am going to keep going until Shannon kicks back in. Maybe I should check my phone, actually. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I think Shannon is the one that... Okay, well, she'll be back soon. I'm sure she'll rejoin with her link. But we have endemic iguanas. I cannot tell you guys exactly how many. I know it is definitely about five to seven. And there are some located on Allen's Key in the Exuma Keys. And as one of my sing something, Eric, you are so funny. I have not reached that level <laughs> of where I'm ready to start singing on my show yet. But stay tuned. I might just bring my musical talents into this. Um, but Scott's comments just coming in. Even a native can be considered invasive if it arrived on an island. That, yeah, yeah. And so that's what I'm saying. Like the reintroduction, you can't think about taking something that was not there and bringing it somewhere. So thank you, Scott. Three species. Scott coming in clutch with the facts. Three species. <laughs> it was getting so good. Mm -hmm. And seven taxa. Scott had your back, Shannon. And yes, it was getting so good. <laughs> Welcome back. How are we? Are we still frozen? But the point is, which is the big question that we've all been waiting to hear, right? There are a lot of tour companies, a lot of people that come to the Bahamas to interact yeah. with our endemic iguanas. I think I can hear Shannon kicking in on the beautiful keys. Yeah. Welcome here. back. Right. So we have, as Scott helped out, right? Tag team for the win. Three species, seven taxa. Right. And some of these iguanas yeah. are located on some of the Exuma Keys. And we do have tour companies that like mm -hmm. to go there and take guests and yeah. interact with wildlife, period, right? And as far as a conservation standpoint, feeding wildlife is a big no-no. Um, it is something that has become ingrained in the Bahamian ecotourism product. And mm -hmm. to, to here we are. And someone actually came forward as a person. I'm going to pull it off so I can read it because it's like covering our faces. Oh as a person that takes visitors, right? <laughs> as a person that takes <laughs> visitors to visit Allen's Key in the Exuma Keys to see the Bahamian rock iguana, we feed the iguanas grapes. But I've also seen people feeding bread, which the iguanas seem to love. Exclamation mark! Exclamation mark! Da 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 da. My question is: Do iguanas care about carbs? <laughs> love that question thank you so much for asking okay that. let's so tackle let's, this now it's yeah, on let's backtrack a little <laughs> bit so naturally what these iguanas eat right are your sea grape leaves your dilly your wild dilly right mm -hmm. um and any sort of like leaves that are on the keys that they inhabit so they're very they're they're herbivores right so they don't eat meat. 90% all of their diet is encompassing of like fruits and um, and uh, leaves. They don't naturally consume a high content of sugar within their diet. So your sea grape, I'm pretty sure everyone is, most Bahamians should have had sea grape before, right? Mm -hmm. So when you compare a sea grape to an actual grape, it's a totally different category in terms of um, just food um, or just sugar content. There's a lot more fiber in your sea grape opposed to your, your, your regular grape, um, right? Um, there's a lot more fiber in the diet of when you just eat pure leaves, right? And you have to understand they're, they're eating these raw leaves and they're breaking that down in their system to get food. An average iguana lives about 40 years, right? Wow. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, they, they can get pretty, Ooh. reptiles are one of like the oldest living species along with, I think, like dinosaurs, dinosaurs, right? No, they're, yeah. Reptiles are low-key dinosaurs, reptiles and birds. Yeah, they are. When we talk, yeah, when we talk about <laughs> evolution, reptiles evolve, birds evolve from reptiles, mm -hmm. right? So they're essentially reptiles, fine reptiles. <laughs> um, yeah, so you don't want to necessarily, I personally think you shouldn't feed them at all, period. Right. Um, I don't 
condone or like the feeding of wild animals, especially for the iguanas. So when you feed them, you tend to desensitize them to the human um, relationship, right? The human interaction. And in doing that, it makes it easier for, say, predator, not predators, but people who um, want to come in and catch them, it makes it easier for them to do that because they can just feed them and, you know, get them, right? Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about the health of the iguana and what you feed them, you're actually lessening their lifespan um, by giving them bread. <laughs> bread, yeah, bread, one. bread has zero nutritional value, like zero. Um, and if you're thinking that, so they're going to eat what you feed them and then they're going to be less dependent on going out to, you know, um, get food for themselves. That's not really healthy for them, the animal itself. And you're doing the animal a disjustice because when you're shortening their lives, um, you're potentially making them more susceptible to a lot of diseases because what they eat also helps them to, you know, build up their immune systems and, you know, defend them against like anything like, I guess, bacterial or something like that, that might, you know, infect the animals themselves. So you're lowering, in, you're lowering their immune system when you do that. Um, you're also, what's one of the things that when we talk about just like the, that thermal um, capacity or that thermal limit of these animals, Right. So they're spending a lot more time basking in the sun or coming out in the sun, right? So a lot of their physiological functions are deteriorating because of that. Um, so that's not all, that's also not really healthy for them. Mm. Yeah, I think, and I'm so glad that we finally got to talk about this. So yeah, and when I said another here. thing too, so a lot of the thing, uh, one of the things that happens when they feed the iguanas, they tend to like throw the food on the sand, right? Right. So they're also ingesting the sand itself, right? And that's not good for their internal organs. So it's literally eating sandpaper, um, and they're doing that multiple times a day, multiple times a week. And so are iguanas like the kind of opportunist feeders? I know some animals, it's like they, they don't stop. Like they, as, as long as food is there and coming at them, they will keep eating. Like do iguanas know when to stop? It's, I wouldn't say that they don't know when to stop. It's like that survival instinct, right? If I am continuing to get food that is potentially making, um, making me grow faster so I can be more attractive to this female and she will prefer me over the smaller male. So it's in line with that sort of like thinking opposed to opportunistic. It's not necessarily opportunistic. It's more like I can get bigger faster so I can procreate more. Right. Right. Yeah. But I'm also not living longer to procreate as much as I would because my you know, life cycle is being cut short because of all these bad things that you're feeding me. And that's happening because of that. Right. So definitely, yes. When you see people feeding bread, it's a no. No, no. absolutely not. Right. Bread and is the most, it's one, you shouldn't feed them in general, but bread is like the worst thing. One of the worst things you can feed. You might as well feed them some rocks. So they could poop concrete as Lindy <laughs> showed. And Scott in the comments has given some suggestions. Um, if you feed them anything, which you should not, he also does not condone it. Feed them native fruits such as guana berries, sea grapes, darling plum, and pigeon plums. But always look for fruit that are in season. Hmm. I know we had a question about if they mate year round or only certain times of the year. And Scott, uh, only during the spring and um, summer months. Yeah. But we did have a question. Yeah, once a year. So we did have a question, two questions about the iguanas. One, do they swim? Yeah. <laughs> they do. They are, they are good swimmers. Um, so they are? So they are. They are. They are. Okay. They are pretty good swimmers. So rock iguanas do swim. 
Um, green iguanas also swim and they're really prolific swimmers. Um, and then we've all seen the Galapagos iguanas. Um, swimming underwater. Uh, yeah, they feed oh, on the water <laughs> so they yeah. can swim. And yeah. I think the first time I realized that iguanas could swim, it actually kind of freaked me out because I don't know why I just imagined that they would sink. Like, <laughs> I don't, like the minute they hit water that they would just drop to the bottom. But please, guys, well, just because you know that they can swim, let's not start do. throwing iguanas into the water. No, don't. <laughs> they do we it. Don't need to it. Will. <laughs> <laughs> please don't traumatize the iguanas out there. Um, no. But yeah. Oh, so, oh, and please let's not start a swim in iguana. No. Oh absolutely. God! Don't give them ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably that, what we're if, talking about. If I see yeah. an advertisement for so many iguanas, Shannon, I'm gonna be so oh, sad God. that we we birthed that idea on this show. Like, no, absolutely not. And you know the yeah. thing about I wouldn't even like encourage like just interactions with iguanas. Because yeah. they do bite and it hurts. And I can tell you because I've oh, been bitten twice. Oh my gosh. And, and, <laughs> and, and that was in a, a controlled setting, right? So mm. you don't want to have like any interactions with them. And remember, they're wild animals. This feels like time to start showing pictures. That's what this feels like. But we do have a question from Anessa. Is there only one invasive iguana in the Bahamas? No. Um, there are actually two um, species. So you have the Tinosaurus um, similis, um, which I is in the Berry Islands, and also the green iguanas. Okay. Yeah. And I know we also, and your lovely friend is really about to drill you. Are you ready? <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> so, what are the ecological functions of these native iguanas? What are the environmental consequences of not protecting them? And can you please provide some documented consequences? William, no mangoes. If she can't answer this, you really, you really no come ride. I'll leave it up so you can see it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, when you think about just like the Bahamian islands in general, if you've ever been on like one of those keys where there's no people on the keys, right? Mm -hmm. um, we don't necessarily have any soil like natural occurring in our islands, right? right. Um, so these iguanas, when they eat these fruits and they also eat like the fruits of the palms too, um, when they eat the fruits, they poop it out in this like nice little compact um, pre nice poop, what we call scat, and it's essentially all the undigested leaves and all the seeds. And that's mm -hmm. a prepackaged germination um, soil, right? Right. Um, so they help to germinate a lot of the seeds on these islands. So they are ecosystem um, builders right, or engineers. Um, they help to keep the, the plants in check too, right? Because um, the constant grazing and the constant eating off of the plants, that means like no one species is overran by the island. So they, they help with the biodiversity of the island. Right. Apart from that, there are largest land vertebrate animals in the Bahamas, right? They right. were here in the Bahamas before people were here. So, I mean, that's pretty important, right? And he asks about, what else he asks? <laughs> he, oh, sorry. We gotta go through all these questions. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what is going on with my charger now. Let's hope my thing doesn't die. What are some environmental consequences of not protecting them? Well, we lose biodiversity when we don't protect what is naturally occurring, right? And they're already facing a lot of, um, you know, things. Oh, did I disappear or did she disappear? Okay. So they're already facing a lot of challenges with um, losing habitats to development. They don't do well with people living where they are um, because they that our specific rock iguanas tend to like secluded environments or secluded habitats, right? Um, they don't do well with the anthropogenic um, habitats. 
provide some documented consequences. When you say documented consequences, what are you talking about, sir? I can't hear you, Lashanti. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah, I was gonna say, you don't have to get into documented consequences right away, just because, I'm sorry, I'm really, I don't know why my laptop's not charging. <laughs> so I'm really trying to like scramble and uh -huh. do this. Okay, it's charging now. Um, but, Right, we don't have to get into documented consequences, um, William. So we're gonna just keep it moving. Can you? Can everyone see my screen though? Like with the PowerPoint showing the iguana. Yes. Awesome. So, is it, it's not charging again. Why is this like on and off? Not working. So, can you tell us which iguana that is you're holding in your picture? Huh. This is Cyclora, 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 the, the Andrus rock iguana. Mm. <laughs> and this is one beautiful specimen. He is yeah. huge. This is a male. And males are generally um, bigger than females. A lot. And I know the next one we have is what's going on here. This is, um, so in one of those trips that I did with Chad, they were looking to see how they can like, um, sort of like estimate how many um, eggs were in the females or when they were um, starting to develop eggs. So we were doing an ultrasound of this iguana mm -hmm. in the ocean, which is like pretty cool, right? right. And this is also a Andrus rock iguana, but a female. Hmm. Nice. And we have here. Oh, ooh, this is one of the ones that were um, repatriated back to um, Sandy Key. Is this so Sandy that's one of the ones that was taken to the UK and brought back. Yes. And right. this is an actual individual, because I did go with um, Sandy Buckner and Jill Jolly to do a health check on them to see whether they were adjusting to um, the relocation, whether they were healthy, and all of that stuff. Right. And so if you can answer, how does the Andrus iguana differ from the ones found in Exuma? Well, they are, they're the same, um, they're the same species technically, but there are different subspecies, a different population. Um, the ones they have Morphological differences where like their coloration is different. Um, their habitat preferences are different, but they're different subspecies. They're different subspecies from the ones that you find in Exuma keys and lab. So I'm also being really mindful. Not only is my battery not charging, but the prime minister addressed us start in two minutes. Okay. Um, <laughs> we don't have too many other questions, but I will continue the slide. And this is our beautiful. Those are our blue tail lizards, um, amoeba. We have um, we have them occurring on like almost every island in the Bahamas. These are the ones in Ragged Island. Nice. Yeah, and I took a mail boat to Ragged Island to go study those. <laughs> oh, nice. And of course we have here. <laughs> our beautiful Bamian Yes, and this was um, found right at the retreat garden. Nice. You just walk in, pick them up. This one, of course, is a. <laughs> I believe photo. this is Sweetie, actually, one of Scott's oh. articles. Oh, I did love Sweetie. Okay. Yeah. And, her. and I think we have one more. And this is a. That is our. In of green iguanas. And these are the ones that we don't want to have um, hybridized with our rock iguanas. Right. Um, yeah. So that essentially means that we lose one of our, you know, one of our species, our native species. Mm. I think this, yeah, that was the last one. Mm -hmm. So we do have a question. It's a perfect question, actually, because this is where we were going next. How can... Okay, so someone has a daughter 
Who loves reptiles? How can someone get into studying reptiles? Are there any opportunities available? I don't know if there are any opportunities currently available, Corona and everything. Um, but I know for me, what I did was because of the connection with the Bahamas National Trust and the Bahamas National Trust knowing when scientists would come through. Yeah. And most of them would want um, field assistance. And that's the, that's the other thing. You have to be willing to work for free for a bit, right? <laughs> Sometimes you have to um, do it to learn, not to earn. Exactly. And yeah. I took an entire year and a half doing that. Yeah. But it's it's trying to put yourself in, and it's very hard, in contact with researchers that are actively doing research, if you want that feel experience, um, right. and going out with them and, you know, helping them collect animals and work with animals. Right. Also, yeah. Yeah. Also, above your head. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and also like just volunteering with the Bahamas National Trust. I mean, you might have to do half of it yourself, but sitting sitting down and watching a lizard for an hour just to understand what it's doing also works, right? Because you're you're just looking at just like behavioral um differences of the animal or traits. Yeah, and so and also thank you. You've taught him so much. <laughs> I try. It's important. It's important to get out there and connect with people who are in the industry. And I know we want to start wrapping up for anyone who um, wants to catch the prime minister's release. This will be available on YouTube and my website. So we are probably going to go over just a bit longer. But yeah, it's about connecting. And anyone who is interested, Shannon has kindly shared her Twitter handle and her Facebook page. Feel free to reach out to her. There are lots of people at the Bahamas National Trust, like Scott Johnson, as you can see commenting. He is also someone who's dealing with herps and birds. Um, mm -hmm. We do have another comment from William. There you go. The <laughs> <laughs> but what, what is your is opinion? Your... Oh, using invasive iguanas as a type of bush meat. It's it's a cultural thing. So um in for green iguanas in their native range, it is people do hunt them and eat them. And there's no stigma attached to that, right? I think in our in our culture as Bahamians, there is a stigma attached to eating anything that hasn't been raised to eat. Right. Um, it's for me, it's it's touchy when you say iguana because my concern then goes to people who would then take our rock iguanas. And be like, oh no, that's a green iguana I ate. You know what I mean? Um, so I have you you have to be careful when you're saying that you're gonna introduce like eaten of rock iguanas or sorry, green iguanas um into our culture because you have some people that would would tend to abuse that system. And currently we do have like it has been documented. Invasions still do eat rock iguanas, right? And that was born more out of a necessity than anything else. Yeah. So if you could just give some advice to our viewers listening about herps, about the journey, what would you say? What are some of your final thoughts for the audience? Final thoughts. Yeah. If you're passionate about it, don't give up on it. Keep working on it. It might take you seven years to get to a PhD or eight years to get into what you really want to, to do, but don't give up. Um, be willing to work for free in terms of doing internships, um, working with other scientists, or be willing to be uncomfortable in the sense of 
I'm not used to doing a certain thing a certain way. So mm -hmm. you adapt to, you know, the situation. And what else? Don't give up. Yeah, <laughs> Education is the key. Yeah, <laughs> Keep moving. I, I think it's always important too to remember, um, even if you won't be able to go off to school, there are a lot of technical skills that you can learn. Um, mm -hmm. You can become research field assistants for these researchers as well, help them out. You can still collect data um, and eventually you never know. There are always opportunities out there for people who are passionate about the topic and opportunities I mean like as in scholarships. So this is something you are passionate about and you are willing to put yourself out there and do a lot of that dirty work, do a lot of that free work and volunteering, you will run into somebody who will help you. You know, And this fortunately conservation is that kind of field where there are a lot of opportunities and there are a lot of needs that organizations and that other researchers have where you would be able to make your way. Um, and I think just if you could give a, a message just quickly to all the little girls out there who probably have only ever seen boys playing with lizards, let them know it's okay to be a herper. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And I was probably one of the those girls with the only one of the only girls with the boys playing with the lizards and I didn't feel any sort of way and women can do this regardless of what anyone says you can be a herper you can play with lizards you can play with snakes it's not a male's job it's everyone's job mm -hmm. conservation it's everyone's business yes Logan again I'm gonna to get to the point where I can do this one day and then you'll see where it's just pop up on the screen when I get some like money to pay a producer to do all this stuff. Um, yeah, Shannon, you know, thanks so much for doing this for me and with me. Um, we've been friends for about four, four years now. Dang, three? Been for years, but it feels like forever. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't know. It's, time doesn't matter. We don't it's, count the days. some time. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, thank you so much for everyone who viewed. I know we had a, a large following up until the time for the prime minister to do his address. He always uh -huh. does this to me. He's always <laughs> the one after me. Thank you for pre-gaming with us ahead of the, the prime minister's address. Please always remember, guys, it is not the ocean that separates us. It's what's connecting us to each other and to nature. Thank you again for joining us on another episode of Siren Sundays. And I'll see you next week for the finale with Mark Daniels. And if you've been following the show, Mark <laughs> is finally going to have a proper platform. No phones cutting off and dying. No camera. <laughs> like, Mark, I'm going to give you a proper show. And we're going to have a proper finale before we end the season for the Christmas break. Thanks so much, all of you beautiful people. And have a wonderful Sunday. All right. Bye.